0: courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East
1: is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya, Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down box or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois
0: Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lay. I'm here with Katie Goulas. And you know, Katie, I got a nice letter from a listener. And she's writing about the program. And then she says, It's great having Katie back on Light of the East. You two are a super team. I love the recent program with the Cantor's family. <laughs> that was one we had your sister on, too. Talking about how you are the Cantor's daughter. What that's like to grow up as a Cantor's daughter. So I want to thank Mary Louise out of Alameda, California, for her very nice letter. We do love hearing from all of you, so just uh, send us an email or give us a call. My phone number is seven zero eight six four five zero two four one, or you can email us here at byzantinecatholic.com. We also had another nice letter from a listener, Marianne Costello, and it's actually kind of a, a question. And she said, I attended your Theology Body classes at Daughters of St. Paul in Chicago and had a question I hope you might be able to answer for me from a Catholic perspective. I found the statement about that religion is subjective disturbing because it seems to defy the notion of objective truth and is included in a Catholic university pastoral studies newsletter. I have no training in theology or philosophy, so I wondered if I'm just missing something. And in fact, she sent to me, uh, her name is Marianne, she sent to me a little portion of what appeared in the Catholic newsletter, and it says this. It's talking about a young lady, and says, she is currently completing a college ministry program, and her experience has trained her how to relate to all ideologies and faiths, giving counsel to people from every walk of life. Quote, while studying philosophy and theology, I learned that religion is subjective. It isn't objective. It is important for people of all faiths to understand this when listening to views that you may not agree with. It's all about your past experiences and relationships. Students have extremely diverse backgrounds and beliefs. By working together in small interactive classes, students learn from the differences and discover that what faith and ministry mean to different people. And this young lady, according to the article, credits her college with her ability to apply theology to the modern world. She hopes to spend more time discussing theology and philosophy in her pastoral work. We are all after the same goal, she says, quote-unquote, the paths we take there may vary. Studying has given her the time-tested theological tools to assist people in the modern world to engage and conquer the moral problems. Okay, what our good friend Marianne is talking about is she's talking about the moral relativism or even the kind of theological relativism, which uh, is a problem in the church today, and certainly it's an issue that... Pope Benedict XVI brings up from time to time. We're talking to talk about that issue here in light of the East, and also especially from, of course, the Eastern Catholic perspective. I also do want to pause here and thank and say hello to our good friends out in Buffalo and Rochester, New York, who might be listening, our good friends from the Stations of the Cross radio who sponsored me out there to give lots of talks on various issues of Catholic morality and faith. I'd like to thank especially Dave and Steve and the Maurer family who hosted me so, so beautifully. So, hello to all of you, and maybe some of you who are new listeners as a result of meeting me from my talks out in Buffalo and Rochester, New York. Well, back to our question about religion is subjective. Actually, there's a certain truth to that, that religion can have what we call a subjective component to it, meaning religion, now notice, I'm, I'm differentiating between religion and actual faith or truth. See, that's the difference. People oftentimes confuse the two. They associate religion with truth. There could be many religions, and yes, some of the religious beliefs of a religion grow out of subjective experience, and therefore they do become, in a sense, subjective. There is a certain emphasis on experience. But I think what our listener is troubled about is the idea of the difference between religion and objective truth. Well, this is where I apply something that John Paul II taught us in the New Evangelization. I call it the penetrating journey to honesty, honesty about words, the meaning of words. You see, what happens when you search for truth is, yes, you can start with our experience, and that's what we do today. They call this phenomenology. Years ago, or decades or generations ago, it was very simple for people to accept objective truth because it was taught by an authority. If the church taught it, or teacher taught it, professor, whoever, someone who whom you know was authorized or knew more than you, you accepted it. And if you didn't understand it or totally integrate it, you accepted it, you tried to live by it, and that was that. You didn't question it, you didn't really talk about it much. Well, in our day and age, people don't really process things that way. For better or for worse, they just don't. And John Paul II knew this. So what he did in all of his writings and his thoughts, and what we're going to do right now, is he kind of invited people on this journey to honesty. In other words, he started with their experience. Okay, if you want to talk about your experience, if that's what's real to you, and that's how you form your beliefs, then we'll talk about your experience. But we're going to really talk about it. In other words, we're going to really look at your experience and your questions. We'll take an idea, a word, or whatever, such as love, eternity, God, compassion, or even the word religion. Whatever it is you want to talk about, we'll take that word, and we'll go on this deep and penetrating journey into the meaning of that word into your experience of it. But we're going to do so with a kind of a spiraling 360 degrees pattern where we keep trying to see this particular phenomenon as honestly as possible. See, that's the key. And then when you come out after all that spiraling through it, you end up, you are guaranteed to end up with objective truth. And it's a matter of whether you accept it or not. You have to make your choice. You don't start out with objective truth, at least that's not how people learn or accept things today. They used to. And that would be great if they could. So we don't start out with it, but we kind of end up with it by starting out with your experience. So in some respects, yes, religion can have a subjective component to it, which is why I don't like to refer to the Catholic Church, East or West, you know, Catholicism, as religion. Especially today, the way we use words today. Religion, we say religion. it reminds you of? You know how when you go to Smorgasbord or one of those or you can eat family restaurants, those family buffets, and they have all these items. You just kind of go up and down the, the, the buffet table, and they're all basically kind of equal, just kind of pick and choose what you want. Well, that's what we do with religion. We kind of put it all in this equal buffet table, and we kind of go up and down and pick and choose what we want, and we figure they're all equal. They're all on the sort of the buffet table. Well, that kind of reduces especially our faith, our religion, as it were, the church. It reduces it down to being not much more different or valuable or deep or comprehensive than any other quote-unquote religion. And there's a big problem with this because that sells what we have to offer short. It sells short the deep, unfathomable, unique riches of the one true church. The church East and West. The sacramental churches, the Catholic church, along with our Orthodox brethren, who have a sacramental worldview. In other words, there's kind of a hierarchy of things. There's a hierarchy in the church, there's a hierarchy in nature, but they all in some way participate and signify the one Trinitarian God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this unravels for us all the truth about everything in the whole world. So there really is a difference between religion and truth. Truth is truth. It's not subjective. It's not pick and choose. It's not like how I perceive it, how you perceive it. Truth is not relative, not absolute truth. The journey there may be kind of relative and subjective. But if it's an honest journey, you will arrive at truth. And unfortunately, Catholic universities, I purposely did not mention the name of this university, but many Catholic universities today, unfortunately, have shied away from this idea of bringing students into actual truth. The the truth of the church. They tend to want to embrace the philosophy that really comes from the secular world of inclusiveness and not offending people and so on. And so we end up with this kind of relativism, or in particular, the moral relativism, which has disturbed our, our listener today. So anyway, to our listeners and to our good listener who wrote in to us today, Marianne, Ann, basically, it up, yes, religion can be subjective, which is why life is not about religion. It's about truth. It's about faith in that truth and living that truth. And that truth is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit incarnated on this earth through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And everything comes from there. And if we look at our subjective experience deep enough and honest enough, we will come to see that truth. We're going to talk more about truth. In fact, we're going to talk about the truth of being human, about where we came from, where we are now and where we're going with the help of the Byzantine liturgical calendar. We're in between two magnificent feasts right now, the Feast of the Transfiguration of our Lord and also the Feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, or more commonly known in the Latin Rite Church as the Feast of the Assumption. So stay with us here. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and I'm here with Katie Gulitz on Light of the East. imagine living a life without love, marriage, intimacy, sex, having children, or friendship? Of course not. I am Father Thomas Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Why do we desire these things so much? It is because God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a union and communion of persons who united himself with us in what the scripture describes as a mystical marriage, a fruitful self-giving. Scripture also says that we are made in God's image and likeness, so we too are called to become a union and communion of persons in fruitful self-giving. This is why we cannot imagine living without marriage, intimacy, sex, having children, and friendship. Pope John Paul II said in his Theology of the Body that these are the very things that make us most like God. To find out more about the Theology of the Body, visit TaborLife.org. You're listening to Father Thomas Lawyer on Light of the East.
1: listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you
0: Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. And I'm here with Katie Gullis. And we, she and I, are Byzantine Catholics. So we are kind of in the midst of kind of two overlapping feast days, magnificent feast days in the Eastern Church. One of them is in the Western Church as well. The other one is not as prominent in the Western Church. The first one is the Feast of Our Lord's Transfiguration. Now, the actual day of that is August 6th. It's one of my favorites. But they have in our church what's called a post-festive. In other words, There's a period leading up to the feast called the pre-festive, and there's the feast itself, and then there's what they call post-festive, or aftermath of the feast, where you continue to celebrate the feast, but along with that you also observe the particular saints of the day. And that feast of August 6th, Transfiguration, has a post-festive, which then basically brings you up into the pre-festive, the beginning of the other great feast, the feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, or known in the Latin Church as the Assumption of Mary. Now, what's really magnificent about these feasts, there's so many things magnificent about them, is they are truly, truly sacramental, very sacramental feasts, very, or as we call them in the Eastern churches, feasts that draw us into a mystery. See, in the Eastern churches, we call sacraments mystery. And mystery, that word actually comes from what was a rite or ritual back in the Greek-speaking countries centuries ago in which only certain people knew about them. In other words, something was known and something was unknown. And so from that word, mystery or mysterion, we get the word mystery, which we use for sacrament in the Eastern churches. In the Western church, the word sacrament has more to do with a contract or covenant, a kind of a law, as it were. It's interesting how the church works with both lungs, That John Paul II said. You have the emphasis of the sacrament, the promise, the covenant, the law, as it were. And you also have then in the East... The emphasis of the mystery. In other words, something revealed, something hidden. And you need the two of them to really have a strong sense of the sacrament, because sacraments are something which are rock solid, they're binding. At the same time, they are something which reveal something hidden. Something is hidden and revealed all at the same time. And what these sacraments also do is they make visible what is invisible. And that's the magic of these feast days. The Feast of the Transfiguration makes visible the incarnation of christ in other words of the glorious state that he has raised all creation in particular the human person when the three apostles peter james and john went up on top mount tabor christ was mysteriously fantastically gloriously splendidly transfigured before their very eyes and when they saw that they saw two things and this is said in the prayers of our church they saw the glory of the human person. In other words, the way that we really were meant to be. And you notice in the Bible, the Bible at the beginning describes the human person as made in the image and likeness of God, period. You notice that's the only thing it says. The Bible does not say we are made the image and likeness of God, and sometimes we mess up because we're only human. You notice how sometimes we kind of, in a sense, lie about our human definition? We, we define ourselves as human. What do we mess up? Yes, we are human in the sense that we're not perfect. But that imperfection is actually something that's inhuman. It was never meant to be. Think of this kind of like barnacles on a ship. Most ships out at sea have barnacles on them or stuff they pick up from the ocean or the sea. And they're always on the ship. But does that mean they're part of the ship? No, but they're always on there. It's the same thing with us. Our mistakes, our sinfulness, and even especially death, they have become a part of our reality. But they really belong to the order of unreality. They were never meant to be. We were created to be like Adam and Eve were at the beginning, body and soul intact, living somehow in a way that was in harmony, total harmony with God and creation with one another. And then we would pass gently and beautifully on to the next life, body and soul intact. Now all that would have been in store for us. We would experience that too. We would not know death. We know it now, except for sin. Well, on Mount Tabor, the apostles get a glimpse of how Adam and Eve were before the fall. And they get something even more so they get a glimpse of our ultimate glorious destiny as human beings for those of us who hopefully will make it to heaven. When our bodies and souls are reunited together and they shine transfigured in splendor. We don't know exactly the state, but it's something like we are now, but yet somehow super glorious. And they saw this when Christ was on Mount Tabor. But they saw something else yet. They saw his divinity as well. And this completely overwhelmed them. They were knocked right on their faces. In fact, in the icon, it's interesting to see them. They're all falling down and they have their hands on their faces. They look totally, totally befuddled, totally, totally beside themselves because of the glory. In fact, the prayer that we say, we say that the apostles beheld as much of Christ's glory as they possibly could behold. In other words, they were almost at the point of being vaporized, in a sense, destroyed. It was so brilliant, so fantastic, so overwhelming that they just could not contain any more glory. They could not perceive any more glory. Now, for those of you in the Western church, you might recognize in this the destiny of what is called in the Western church as the beatific vision. Those are, We see the glory of God. We look upon God as he is in the next life. We have the concept, too, in the Eastern church. But the Eastern church emphasizes more so our transfiguration into the image and likeness of God, our sort of participation in the very life of the Trinity. As the saints would say, St. Irenaeus was the first to say it in the second century, then it was echoed by other saints in the Byzantine church. We say this, that God became man so that man might become like unto God. No, it doesn't mean that we become God himself in his essence, but we actually become so similar and close to God in, in our glorious state it's almost being, in a sense, grafted onto his nature. We sort of become part of his glory without actually being him. Naturally, we cannot be God as essence. We always remain the creature, he the creator. But the creature and the creator will kind of reflect each other in a very special and glorious way in heaven. This is what the apostles saw. Imagine seeing that vision. And that's why they said, well, let's build tents for you and the prophet Elijah and Moses who appeared with Christ on Mount Tabor conversing. And he says, let's build tents and just hang out here and stay here. And Jesus says, nah, no, this is great, but we got to go down the hill because I had accomplished my mission, which was to suffer, die, and then rise. But he gave them that glimpse so that they could be sustained during that horrific time of Christ's suffering and death. Now, during this feast day, what we do in the Byzantine church is we bless fruit. One of the reasons for this is twofold. First of all, it's a time of year when there is a harvest. In fact, our new organic garden at my church of Annunciation is just about done. We've picked all the tomatoes and cucumbers off of it and it's produced pretty much its yield. And so I kind of can relate to that. So we bring it on to the church and we bless it. But it also is a reminder of that transfiguration. I think of those little seeds that we planted a few months ago that are now this magnificent, succulent, life-giving fruit and vegetable. And that's just like our divinization, our path to transfiguration. So you see, it's very sacramental. It brings in things of the earth, reminds us who we are as humans, where we were and where we're going. Now, the other feast day, that the transfiguration runs up to, is the feast of Our Lady's dormition. In other words, her falling asleep. That's where we get the word like dormitory. Yeah, it means to sleep. So we say in the Eastern Church that her death was something like a sleep, where she died, but not in the exact same way that we would die, because her body and soul did not separate, because she had no sin. She was the new Eve. She was the Eve that was supposed to be at the beginning Her body and soul remains intact. And so she moves into the next life. She's received by Christ into the next life, body and soul together. And once again, this points to our destiny as a human, that this is what's going to happen to us, except we have to go through this, well, this strange process of our body and soul splitting apart for a while, the body rotting in the grave and the soul going on to the next life. We have to wait until the time of the final resurrection when our bodies and souls will be reunited again. And for those who are saved, will end up in heaven, gloriously transfigured. Well, that the Virgin Mary had on earth because she was without sin. She had on earth in her her early lifetime, she had what we have to wait for until the end of time. We have many beautiful ways to express this feast day, and our good friend Katie is going to read some of the liturgical texts from this day. In fact, these are the ones we read today on this Sunday after the Dormition.
2: O Glorious Marvel! A virgin gave birth to God in the flesh, remained a virgin, and now passes from life. Leaving an earthly life, she passes over to everlasting life. For this reason, the disciples and apostles of Christ gathered together for her burial. Let us, in harmony with the angels, joyfully glorify the feast today, the precious dormition of the Theotokos. Her holy and life-bearing soul has been placed into the hands of her Son, she is now united with him in the everlasting life, spiritually entreating in our behalf.
0: So, Katie, you grew up in the Byzantine church with these customs and these liturgical texts, and what was it like for you?
2: It was a lot of fun. The things that I learned growing up, I also took with me to college. In fact, oh, uh-huh. during the Feast of the Transfiguration, we were in resident advisor training every year. Uh-huh. And so I would always bring grapes with me to daily mass oh. that day. And I would have uh, one of the priests bless my grapes oh, for me. Good. <laughs> very
0: so smart. I was
2: sharing my traditions with other people. Oh, too. Very
0: good. And you have little Little connection touched on with back home. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of blessing things on this beautiful feast of our Mother of God, of her her Dormition or her Assumption, we have a tradition of blessing flowers and herbs that we bring in. Just as we bring in fruit for the Transfiguration, we bring in flowers and herbs. You know, again, things of the earth that remind us of these great events and feast days of Christ, the Mother of God, and of our own origin and destiny. Just many of the great riches of the Eastern lung of the church. I want to thank you for listening to us here on Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya here with Katie Goulis on Light of the East.
1: Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East I'm Father Thomas Loya or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear for the first time.
0: Thank you for listening. Next week we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish visit our website byzantinecatholic.com where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's Reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years.